Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. Uh, today, we're joined by a friend of this podcast, Shane O'Mara, who is the Professor of Experimental Brain Research at Trinity College Dublin. Um, he wrote a fabulous book last year called Talking Heads that we discussed on this podcast with Shane. Um, and I guess if you want to read Shane's ongoing thoughts about the world, his Substack Brain Pizza is a must read. So Shane, you're very welcome to this podcast. Uh, there's so much that both Chris and myself would like to talk to you about. You've written a few fascinating Brain Pizza pieces recently. I loved your piece on smartphones, for example. Um, I'm not sure if we get time to talk about that, but I, I guess the one that really hit me was the piece you wrote about George Orwell in 1984 in the last few days. I have just finished reading the Booker winning Paul Lynch's Prophet song. And I guess my reaction to that is that it's basically an Irish take on 1984 um, very much. But anyway, your your piece on 1984 was fascinating and you say in it that authoritarianism and totalitarianism all fail eventually. I hope you are right on that one. I think your your description of 1984, a grey and rain-swept London, ever-present hunger, um, the observation and monitoring of the population, the indoctrination and propaganda, power cuts, damn cold seeping into everything and everyone. I think it's a very vivid description of what 1984 was all about. So I think it's it's really relevant to the world today, given you know what we see happening in countries like China, North Korea, um, Hungary, um, I think the United States at the moment. And I certainly want to get back to you about some observations I had about the Iowa caucus in the United States last week and some comments I heard from voters who were leaving the polling station. So I, I think that's a discussion about 
truth and people's attitudes to truth and so on uh, that I'd like to talk about. But starting off on 1984, I mean, what prompted you to write that piece? Yeah, so thanks, Jim, and thanks, Chris. I have long been a fan uh, of Orwell. I originally read 1984 before reading Animal Farm, actually. When I was in hospital for a small operation when I was a kid, and the guy in the bed next to me had a copy of it and gave it to me uh, to read because I'd run out of stuff to read. And I found it at the time just to be the most shocking and incomprehensible and uh, astounding book. Uh, and I, I've, I, I think that if I date a political awakening in me into anything, it, it, it's my encounter with Orwell. Of course, this was at the height of the Cold War. Uh, there was a, a, a tyrannical authoritarian uh, regime seeking to uh, impose its its will on the West. Um, and uh, I've remained long fascinated with Orwell as a, as a result. And, and this year is the 75th anniversary of the publication of 1984. It's a peculiar book uh, in some respects, uh, you know, because it's a, it's a mixture of a, a kind of an and not very realistic, I think, in some respects, novelistic story mixed with political observations and the most acute psychological analyses of uh, the willingness of people to buckle under authoritarianism, how they uh, fail to resist it. Um, but uh, as I mentioned in the piece, what people never do with his book is they don't read the appendix because it appears to be a, a kind of a boring kind of a, uh, an add-on. And actually, the appendix is the key to the book because it's written after the collapse of the authoritarian regime uh, that he described so vividly in 1984. So it, it's a book that you can go back to time and time again and see new things in um, and discover new ways of seeing the world. I was particularly taken, Shane, by the bit that you drew out in your Substack piece about the way in which the torturer uh, manages to convince Winston Smith that there are different versions of the truth and that you can believe, uh, in the words of Lewis Carroll, six impossible things before breakfast time via the most awful form of torture, but a particular form of torture. And as a neuroscientist, I think this particularly took your interest, which is, a, 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 as you say, a kind of electroconvulsive shock where he is convincing Winston Smith that he is holding up five fingers when in fact he's only holding up four and it's even more subtle than that in that he knows that when Winston Smith in response to the torture says that the torturer is holding up five fingers that he's lying that Winston Smith knows that it's four the torturer knows that it's four but it's not good enough that Winston Smith is lying he's got to somehow convince somewhere in Winston Smith's mind that it really is five fingers when the fact is that it's four and it goes, you go through the subtle and not so subtle ways in which for certainly for brief periods of time, if not permanently, Smith is convinced himself that there is a new fact that it is in fact five fingers. And that, that, that of course is not true. That has a lot of resonance for me with a, an awful lot of things that I struggle with today, which is that we see so many examples all over the place. People, clearly believing things that are at variance with the facts. Now, I'm very careful when I say say that because I don't claim to be the gatekeeper of the truth, the facts, but I like to think, maybe it's a conceit, that I have 
a set of beliefs that um, some have not have has a nodding acquaintance with evidence, with with facts. And I'm astonished by the, the the plethora of examples that I could cite about our modern world in which people clearly believe things not to be true. In the world of economics and finance, and the, the, this phenomenon is not restricted to that world, of course, one of the most obvious examples is the state of the US economy. Big economy, biggest in the world, um, notwithstanding Chinese protests to the contrary. And there, everybody or an, all, an awful lot of people say that they are much worse off financially, economically under Joe Biden than they were under Trump. And that is simply at variance with established truth. And there is survey after survey of people saying precisely that they are worse off under Biden and they want Trump back because that they will be much better off financially than under Joe Biden. And surveyors have even gone to the point where they've isolated the people who have answered the question in that way and discovered that in real terms, they are $40,000 a year better off. And, it, and these facts, nevertheless, do not change opinion. So the two questions I've got, one I suspect is completely unanswerable, is that am I being just another one of these arrogant elitist twits who um, believe that we are gatekeepers to the truth and that the great unwashed um, needs to pull their socks up and become acquainted with data and facts. And perhaps uh, less deeply philosophical um, is, is it any worse now, do you think, historically, this, this ability that we have to be Winston Smith, to, to be subjected to these, these beliefs, this way of being that's, that says that we, we, we take more from our group identities and therefore our facts are determined by the group identity rather than objective truth. Is there something different going on or was it ever thus, Shane, do you think? I, I think it was always thus. And what's new in human history is a willingness to pay attention to facts. That uh, If you look over the sweep of, of our past, uh, we thought it perfectly reasonable to put each other to the sword over doctrinal differences like consubstantiation and transubstantiation. We fought religious wars in Europe over which version of the Bible was the, the more veridical representation of the word of God and thought it reasonable to kill hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, for this, we, we've believed in witches and we condemned who knows how many females to uh, death in the, in the 15th and 1600s. You know, I, I think that the better way to look at this is that we've only learned to read and write in the population at large, really over the, in the last 100 years or so. Most people were illiterate in 1800, about 15% of the population were illiterate. Now we're, we're reversing those numbers. And professions in which hewing to particular aspects of, of empirical reality are novel. You know, so if you, you take the example that, that, that you give of Trump voters who are better off, but assert they are worse off, that's an, a, a consequence free belief because they are better off and they can assert uh, a component of, of their own identity. But if they were to do that as stockbrokers betting money on the, the markets, um, uh, they will pay close, close attention to actually what the numbers are doing. Or an engineer who would wish away tolerances in the design of a railroad is going to find themselves coming a cropper. Or Boeing, uh, you know, to pick on a, an example where tolerances in the design of, of aircraft have, have uh, come under a lot of scrutiny in the last while. Uh, you know, empirical reality finds you out very quickly in these kinds of domains. We need to get away from the idea that uh, merely providing information is enough to make people 
change their minds. So how do we do that, Shane? Yeah, so there's, I discussed this at length, actually, in my Talking Heads book. Uh, The first thing to say is beliefs are sticky. They change slowly. They don't change quickly. And we look to the group that we're in to calibrate the beliefs that we have. And if the group that you're in is a, you know, for example, a financially well-off group that's talking nonsense, you can affirm each other's identity very well without that costing you anything. The empirical test there uh, of nature is not something that you're going to run into uh, very quickly. Now, if if you want to change people's mind, the first thing you have to do is decide that facts don't matter in the first instance. And that's a hard thing for an empirical scientist to, to, to say. You know, there was the idea at the start of the pandemic. All we had to do was to say to people, look, vaccination got rid of polio. Vaccination got rid of smallpox. Vaccination got rid of uh, measles, mumps and rubella and a whole lot of other things. Vaccination is a good thing. But actually, that's not where people are coming from. People aren't biologists. They're, they aren't immunologists and they have to make the decision to trust in the authorities that uh, taking a vaccine uh, is actually a good thing. Now, refusal to take the vaccine, of course, we, we know there's loads of data to show that people who refused the vaccine died disproportionately compared to people who, uh, who didn't. But for the individual who's making this decision, what you have to do is start from a position of hearing what they have to say, allowing them to articulate what it is that they believe. And you have to do this at, at, at some length. It, it's a costly exercise. They call it deep canvassing in the US, uh, where you, uh, you're trying to get people to orient to a different uh, point of view. And it takes a lot of practice. It takes people saying, you engaging almost in a Socratic dialogue, where you get people to talk through what they're saying. And in, in the case of the people who are 40 grand better off, uh, a one-on-one conversation where you talk through tax returns and income <laughs> over the last 10 years is actually what you need to do. And you need to do that in a very deep, gentle and respectful way. And of course, the you know the media environment and the social environment we find ourselves in militates against doing something like that. Yeah, I, I, I came across a um, on a board outside a restaurant in North America recently, anti-vaxxers who believe that a vaccine will change their genetic makeup should welcome the opportunity i thought it summed it up really really well um i i was struck by uh, voters coming out having voted for trump in the iowan caucus last week saying that the reason why they voted for trump is that since trump left office uh, things in the united states have deteriorated chris and myself in our last podcast we were talking about the united states and how well it's doing in many ways and uh, w- one of our regular listeners uh, came back to us and said, well, actually, it's not. The, the States is shit at the moment. Everything is bad. You know, so are, are we wasting our time trying to... Yeah, yeah. Think about the reference group those people are talking about. You know, when they're saying things are bad, what are they actually saying? They're not actually talking about the fact that the US is 4% unemployment and uh, incomes are up. What they're actually saying is their reference and identity group is not in charge. They're talking about something else, uh, which is status, power and identity. They're not talking about money. And uh, if you're very, very well off, if you're earning $150,000 a year, two or $3,000 a year more or less is is not going to make much difference to you. Uh, The real thing that you're going to be worried about is, has been mentioned in the past on 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 this podcast, uh, Maslow's hierarchy. Where are you with respect to 
your status, where are you with respect to your identity? All your basic needs have been fulfilled. How is your reference group doing compared to another reference group? And that's the, uh, I, th- I think, really the uh, the issue that's going on there. It, it, it's not a kind of an abstract, oh, well, we've got 4% unemployment and average income is, is at 55 or 60K or whatever it happens to be, and house prices are doing X, Y, Z. It, it, it's an entirely different set of concerns, and those are the concerns that, that people have. But James, why, why do people sleepwalk into authoritarianism? You, you know, you, you look at, well, the North Koreans, I guess, have no choice. But you look at Russia, you look at Turkey, you look at Hungary at the moment, you look at what the U.S. electorate is about to do, most probably. It's all sleepwalking into a more authoritarian regime. Why do people do that? I mean, I couldn't possibly imagine myself doing anything remotely to support an authoritarian view of the world. Yeah, so the, there's a really interesting uh, political psychologist, uh, Karen Stenner, uh, who uh, works in Australia. And she's uh, spent a long time in the US and other, other places looking at this question. And, you know, there's an old uh, book going back to the 50s by Eric Fromm, the authoritarian personality. And the, the claim that Fromm makes in a kind of a literary way and Stenner makes in an empirical way is that everywhere you look, no matter what society you, you, you look at, there is a group of people who are predisposed to authoritarianism in a very particular kind of way. Now, I, I'm not saying this in a, in a pejorative sense. Uh, it, it's more how they conceive society should be organized. And her estimate is that it's about 25 or 30 percent of any population that, that you care to look at. And essentially, the core notion is that people don't like high rates of change. They want to police the edges of what's reasonable uh, to talk about and to do within their society. And uh, that it's a predisposition that comes out when people are feeling threat, uh, usually to their status uh, or their identity. Uh, so this is, a, is, is quite a complicated uh, um, you, you've uh, answered my yeah, You've answered, I think, my question, which I was about to ask, which is, why do people hold these beliefs? When, again, to try and set it up against the historic experience of authoritarianism, and therefore the facts, the data, and we have plenty of data on what authoritarian regimes historically look like. And typically, from both an economic and financial, which I agree with your earlier remarks, that's a narrow perspective to take. Take a broader perspective and look at the societal outcomes. Look at the number of people who've died as a result of authoritarian regimes. Look at the gulags, look at the concentration camps, look at the starvation in North Korea today, and on and on and on. And I think it probably is uncontroversial to say that authoritarian regimes historically, there have been plenty of them, and they generally, from a broad host of perspectives, criteria, objective facts have led to bad outcomes for people across financial, social, life chance criteria. And yet, you're telling me that because they are in some way threatened in terms of their status, in terms of their identity, people still think authoritarianism is a good idea. If I misinterpreted you. It, it's not that it's an idea, that it's it's a personality disposition where you're seeking order in chaos and uh, you're seeking to uh, slow rates of change and you're seeking to police what's reasonable. We like a certain amount of change, but there is 
there's an amount of change that For is some too people, much. Some of the time, there's too much. We don't um, like chaos as human beings. Yeah, and uh, especially the, the key point Stenner makes is that uh, when people feel their status and identity is being threatened, that's the uh, the, the key variable that uh, causes this uh, kind of willingness to to look to authoritarianism uh, as as uh, a solution. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And so pointing out to them that, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to starve or die or be in prison as a result of authoritarianism, or if it's not you, it's going to be somebody you know, perhaps somebody you're close to, doesn't really matter? No, 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 that, that, that's not the point. The point is the here and now. The, the point is not the abstract, what might happen. And of course, you as economists all know that the most expensive words in history uh, are this time it'll be different. <laughs> um, and uh, it never is. <laughs> I, I suppose, you know, if, if, when we think about authoritarian regimes now and we compare them to those that arose 100 years ago or 50 years ago, they're much less brutal in, in uh, terms of, of uh, uh, outcomes. Uh, you know, if you look back to the, the show trials and, and uh, all of the other things that happened in the Soviet Union in the 20s and the 30s or uh, other authoritarian places around the planet, they tend, in my view, to burn out after uh, a period of time. Um, and this is because, of course, you have true believers, you have, have the people who are predisposed to this, but you have people who are just instrumentalists. You know, they'll go along with this for personal enrichment. Um, and you have other slow-moving variables in the background. Um, in, in, and the, the one that I mentioned, of course, is is education. And tell me, Shane, do you, do you think globally uh, democracy is under serious threat at the moment? Depends on, on uh, what you mean by democracy, and uh, it depends well, on I, I guess time scale. Democracy, as I would define it, is, is basically that the governors govern with the best interests of the governed at heart. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, and I, I, I don't know that that's ever been true, that the <laughs> governed with the best interests. Like Ireland was a very robust democracy since the 1920s, but uh, we we also had an authoritarian caste uh, in in terms of of uh, how the country should be run, which impoverished us and led to uh, uh, mass immigration, uh, emigration rather. Um, so so I I I don't know is is, is the honest answer. I, 
one of the things, a long view, maybe, maybe not. But uh, you know, the next few years will be interesting. One of the things that my, my casual empiricism um, has been challenged recently is that I used to think that these authoritarian regimes were typically dominated by that caste that you referred to there in Ireland, but in many other places by old men. And I, I've always, again, you tell me if this is right or wrong, but I've always thought that the authoritarian personality, I've read that book by Eric from a long time ago, was something that happened to men in particular as they got older. And if you look at places like uh, Iran, the United States, Moscow, uh, they're, they're dominated by grey old men who seem to become more authoritarian as they as they get older. It seems to be a function of ageing. And I think that's linked to the, the point about not liking chaos, is that as you get older, you, you like chaos even less. You tend to embrace it in your 20s and resile against it in your 70s and, and your 80s. And when you're that old, you want to leave a world behind that is pretty unchanging. Because that's, you feel in some... Well, maybe we need a new phrase. Uh, instead of it being a, an authoritarian uh, regime, maybe it's an old cootocracy. Well, yeah, because as an old person, you, 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 I think some men think that uh, they'd hate to leave a world behind that uh, was was not the one that they lived in, and that some that's they somehow feel invalidated as as human beings if 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 everything that they once held to be true is no longer true, or at least the the world in which they lived has changed so much that it somehow or other they are are invalidated. I do think there are weird psychological processes going on. But that view of mine about aging and authoritarianism has been challenged by opinion polls recently in many countries that say that, lot, and this goes back to Jim's question, lots of younger people are saying that they would prefer a strongman leader to a democratically elected government. And I find that very worrying. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't have a strong opinion on, on that. And I, I suppose, that, you know, I, 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 as I've often said, I try to keep away from politics in my <laughs> my own uh, substack i i suppose uh, you know young people might say people in their 40s and 50s and 60s have done nothing about crises that affect them directly and they're looking for a simple solution somebody that can wave a magic wand and uh, suddenly get building going again in san francisco or where it's notoriously difficult to build uh, or the thousands of houses that are stuck in planning limbo here we just wave a wand and somehow they come to uh, into being, maybe they think that's going to happen and life will teach them, unfortunately, otherwise. I, I, I'm a little bit confused here. We're, we're trying to put structures on, I guess, political belief systems and so on. And if, if you look at those people who are going to vote for Trump and possibly, very possibly, make him president um, on the 6th of November, the one thing you're guaranteed with Trump is chaos in every respect, in terms of economic management, in terms of political management, in terms of external relations, both economic and political, it's just going to be utter chaos. And you, you, you also hear some of his voters sort of saying that, you know, the state is too powerful, it's having too much of an impact on our lives, etc., etc. And yet, they're going to vote for somebody who actually will increase the power over their lives. That's the point. He's their guy, and they're voting for him because they identify with him, and they have they see status within their own uh, groups because of him. And the other stuff doesn't matter. So Shane, if if if, and I totally take your remarks that you you don't like getting into the pure politics of this, which is why I'm trying to to focus on the psychology of this, the behavioural aspects of of this. 
And because I do think that there are deep psychological forces at work here, both in terms of Brexit, Trump, the war in Ukraine, all sorts of different geopolitical things going on have deep psychological roots. But to, to bring it to something very concrete, to examine one route, if Joe Biden was to come to you and to say, look, this this deep psychological attachment that people have to my opponent, opponent is at variance with objective truth. You tell me that people are authoritarian because they don't like chaos, but they're going to vote for somebody who is going to it, deliver more, more change. More, Sorry, go yeah, on. this guy's yeah, going to, you know, the, 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 they are voting against their own psychological uh, health in the sense that what they want is stability rather than chaos, and they're going to get more chaos and less stability. Shane, as a, as, as a professor of neuroscience, is there anything I can do to, to change one or two people's minds? Um, <laughs> that's a really hard question. And I, I think the only route I could suggest is... is uh, to go down uh, the issue of, of uh, or down the route of, of uh, uh, deep canvassing, where you, you have a deep, respectful uh, conversation. But it, as, as you were speaking, you, you reminded me of, of uh, there's some data uh, by a social psychologist, uh, Jay Van Bavel at New York University, who's been looking a lot at, at polarization within uh, politics in the US. His data seemed to suggest that a lot of what's going on in terms of the group dynamic in the US, uh, and I don't know how well this translates to other countries, is not driven so much by love of a particular party leader as dislike of the uh, uh, the opposite party. So outgroup uh, polarization, um, uh, or outgroup, uh, the, the dynamic is really, uh, Trump people might not love Trump especially, but they really hate the Democrats. And... Uh, the, the reverse is true, that the uh, Biden people don't love him especially, but they really, really hate uh, uh, the Republicans. And it's that group in the middle uh, who seem to be a very narrow group um, are the ones who will determine uh, an election, those who are indifferent in, in their, uh, their preferences. I think it keeps coming back to this issue that, regrettably, or maybe not, uh, the economics of this are an issue to be parked to one side. What's really important is, is how people perceive each other, what status they have within their own groups, and uh, the extent to which they dehumanize people that are in the uh, that are members of the, of uh, the other other group. You know, and I've seen some data saying that certain people in the Republican Party regard Democrats as not American. That's, and that's new, Shane. That is definitely new because, yeah. from my own personal experience, I have countless American friends who tell me that in the old days, in the good old days, we used to be able to go out for a beer with Republicans and vice versa. I can't do that anymore. Yeah. And, and maybe that's because we've allowed or they, they've allowed the political temperature to become much too hot, that uh, politics is being treated as a, as a horse race that you bet on and that you identify with rather than just a, a means to creating a, a somewhat better society. But, you know, America is an interesting place. 200 years ago, they fought, or 180 years ago, they fought uh, an astonishing war against each other in the Civil War over uh, slavery uh, and the, the, the rights of, of states to secede. And we know the outcome there. But I also worry about something else, and this is not to sound anti-American by any means. Our thinking is driven very much by the outsized role that America plays in our lives. 
Uh, and I'll bet you both of you can name all of the uh, members of the U.S. Supreme Court. But I'll bet you you can't name <laughs> members of the Irish Supreme Court or the U.K. Supreme Court or who uh, is in charge of the uh, ECJ at the moment. Um, you know, there's a kind of a we import, given the outsized role that the U.S. has in our lives, things from the U.S. that don't necessarily fit very well uh, with what's going on in our own Polities, as it were. We we could talk about all this all day, Shane, and and it, it you've certainly given me a lot of food for thought there. Before we conclude, and I suspect we've got a good few more minutes yet, Jim, please feel free to jump in here. The the, the two things that I wanted to uh, change the topic of conversation to are something that we've talked about in the past which are the amazing weight loss drugs. I was struck by a recent podcast with you where we started talking about this and you really came across as having a wow moment, that this was something uh, that really had taken you almost by surprise, that you hadn't expected it, and that some of the hype around uh, Novo Nordisk, the company, one of the companies that, that's producing the, these drugs, I think Eli Lilly is another, some of the hype is real. And that for once, that, that, that there, there is something to all of, all of the headlines. The other thing that I briefly wanted to touch base with you was, have you revised any of your attitudes or updated them with respect to AI? Because I've borrowed your, your phrase, stochastic parrots, when it comes to large language models and the skepticism embodied in, in that phrase. And it, it has to be said that AI fever is still sweeping the, the tech world. Um, and stock markets, uh, all of the companies involved in AI share prices are still going through the roof in 2024 so far. The hype there, which you are more skeptical about, just seems to be increasing exponentially. So there's there's two balls hopped at you. Take take any one. Well, I'll take the, the GLP uh, drugs first. The data on them are coming in thick and fast. And uh, I teach a course on neurotherapy. And I've been delighted to completely bin uh, the lectures that I, I teach on obesity and appetite control uh, because we now have, for the first time, uh, th this amazing class of drug um, that uh, really do seem to work. Um, and uh, since we spoke last, uh, a, a newer drug has uh, come out from Eli Lilly, Liraglutide, uh, which maintains weight loss post uh, the drug itself uh, being uh, once you, you 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 stop taking the drug, not you you don't maintain as as much weight loss as you would if you were on the drug, but uh, certainly you still continue to maintain some, and it it really is I think uh, quite remarkable, and the collateral effects on people's health uh, in terms of of uh, 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 rates of cancers, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, all of these things really do look quite amazing now. Of course, we're talking clinical trials with, you know, some thousands of people. And uh, we have to see what happens when these drugs go out into the population at large. There will be people who can't tolerate them. There will be people who will become very ill when they take them. There will be people who will abuse them. But it was always thus. Uh, humans do things like this uh, all the time. But I, I think more generally, that neurotherapy course I teach, for the first time in a long time, I've become very positive about our uh, the treatments that are coming along for all sorts of things. We mentioned Alzheimer's earlier on in, in the pre-discussion. We're now starting to get a, a class of drugs that aren't very good, that don't work terribly well, but it's the first positive signal in, in uh, 30 years. And I think this is great. And the, on, on the public health side, we know a lot more 
about prevention than we ever did. So the, the news there is very positive. On the AI front, I, I continue to be very skeptical. I play with ChatGPT regularly. I enjoy it. Uh, I play with Bard uh, pretty regularly as well. I think it's going to become much more like a co-pilot. You know, you have to do X. You have to write a new Excel formula and you can't think how to get it up. Uh, you type in a, a nice uh, prompt and it, it produces something to get you going. Uh, I think it's going to be a boon for loads and loads of, of low-level tasks. At least some of the data I've seen suggest that where it works best is people who are doing uh, knowledge work where they're not yet experts. That uh, uh, It helps augment the performance of people who are in training, uh, who have been taught how to use these tools effectively. But it's not an autonomous intelligence. Skynet is not coming to kill us. And there's an element, I think, of tulip fever uh, around some of the claims that are being made for it. Tell me, Shane, as a lecturer, have you encountered it in assignments and so on? And how do you deal with it? So um, I ask this I for very personal reasons. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we have an AI policy here in, in Trinity. And uh, 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 what I do, do is I provide essay titles for assignments and I provide the chat GPT response and uh, it tends not to be very good because chat GPT is blind to the scientific literature. Uh, it gets some of the open access stuff, but it's not able to actually read the papers because they're all hidden behind paywalls. And I'd never thought I'd say, I'm glad paywalls exist, but <laughs> this is a, an, an example where, uh, so you, you can test run essay titles yourself and see what it comes up with. And, and I think the trick really is is uh, to use questions that require deep consideration of course material where, you know, you actually have to go off and read material deeply and carefully. And by showing what ChatGPT comes up with to an essay prompt and show just how poor it is, uh, students realize very quickly that this is not the... Uh, the, the the way for them to go and the, i also think you know my experience is our students are very serious about their learning um you know so they they do go to the library i can see the access the statistics on blackboard for downloading the readings and all of the rest of it and i, I generally i'm very very happy uh with them yeah my own personal experience of this is is that that phrase that you used um i think resonates co-pilot and that we can use it as a better starting off point for a project, for a piece of work, for a piece of research, for an essay, for an article. But it, it is by no means the finished article when you first interrogate uh, these, these chatbots. And from being an initial enthusiast, when I first came across these things, I had a wow moment. But then having used them, as, as you have, Shane, I've used ChatGPT and Bard a lot and I find that I'm essentially going back to Google and doing some deeper work when yeah. I get their answers because uh, they get so many things wrong, just simply, yeah. simply wrong. They do hallucinate, to, to use, a, to use a, a, current, a current phrase. The thing that I use uh, the, these systems for more than anything else these days is to design graphics for our Substack posts. Um, they are, they're very good. For, yeah, they're great, actually. I love them. Or, or, desi <laughs> or designing pictures. And, you have too much time uh, on your hands, Chris. Too much time on my hands. 
Jim, I'll leave the, I'll leave the last words to you, but I'll conclude by once again thanking Shane very much for an amazing conversation. Um, we could go all day, and it's been great. Uh, lots to think about there, and just to say a very very big thank you for your time. Over to you, Jim. <laughs> Yeah, likewise, Shane. Thank you very much. And for our listeners, I would strongly recommend um, Shane's Substack Brain Pizza. Um, some fascinating stuff covered there. Uh, Shane, I look forward to talk to you again, actually, regularly over the next year, because globally, we have 76 states with elections this year. And I, I think there'll be huge, huge analysis to be done on the results from those elections in terms of the rise of the right, authoritarianism, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we, we'll have many interesting discussions about electoral behavior and uh, the psychology of voting and so on. So listen, thanks a million for your time. Uh, much appreciated by Chris, myself, as always. Thank you. That was great.